0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas that's right you're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast i'm chad dundas that's ben folks we're both senior writers in mma for the athletic we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts.
1: I really like the new intro.
0: You know what? It's not quite muscle memory yet. Still, I need my notes. Yeah. But I thought that went okay.
1: Yeah, that's not bad. It's, it's, it's just streamlined it is what I appreciate. It clips right along. Yeah. That's what I
0: like about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so you've streamlined is a good word for it. That's right. Ben, can you... uh? Respond to allegations of rampant oh, here we corruption go. from team folks when it comes to the uh, here we the go. voting for next week's first ever CME Patreon movie club? What are you talking about? All right. For people who don't know. Let's tell for the people who don't know out there. The people who are listening to the sounds of our voices right now who are not, for whatever reason, who are not members of the co man event podcast Patreon. We just wrapped up Road Agents, where we've been talking about Deadwood. That's right. We watched our way all the way through Deadwood. We did 17 episodes, special podcast, where we talked about episodes of Deadwood, and we finished it off end of May when they, uh, they mounted the Deadwood movie there on HBO. We did our last episode first week of June. We had to come up with an idea of what we were going to do next for our top-tier patrons, the people who find it in their hearts, to give us $10 and up. A month. Because some people are out there giving us more than that, frankly. We love those
1: people. Sainthood. Wish I could kiss them on the mouth. For
0: those people. Love them as much as I love my own mother. We had to figure out our next move. And our next move was co-main event Patreon Movie Club. That's right. Where once every two weeks, the co-main event Patreon faithful are going to be able to go to the Patreon page, vote for one of two movies that we present as options. And then the winning movie, we watch it, we record a special rewatch podcast about that movie.
1: Can't miss idea.
0: It's genius. So, for the first week, which is going to go down a week from Wednesday, we picked, well, actually, I picked No Country for Old Men. Yes. Because I thought it would be a nice tie in with the recent Co Main Event Podcast Book Club episode. Some people
1: would say too recent, but okay.
0: About that novel, you picked Joe versus the Volcano.
1: Joe versus the Volcano. 1990 Tom Hanks Meg Ryan joint.
0: Now, not only did you post the poll on the Patreon page without telling me to give your people the first chance to get in line for the polls, this is just to stuff the ballot box. If paranoia. You will.
1: This is paranoia, fear mongering.
0: But after your assurances that Joe versus the volcano was available free to stream on Amazon I don't know Amazon if I said. Prime, I don't know
1: if I said free. I said it could be streamable. You can find it online. You can stream it online.
0: It turns out you got to pay money if you want to go watch Joe versus the Volcano.
1: Can you stream it online or not? You can rent it from Amazon Prime for $2.99 or there's other ways I've heard that people find to watch movies without paying cost. Uh, Colleen is on here in the comment section on the poll talking about how she got a copy from her local public library. What now? Plus, it's two ninety nine to rent it. ...off Amazon or YouTube or whatever. You remember when you were a kid, Chad? You remember that feeling of riding your bike down to the movie store? Yeah, I do. Rent a movie? I do. Good feeling. Just a wholesome, pure experience. I'm giving that back to you. Now you can you can do it. You don't even have to get on the bike this time. You can have a little nostalgia for you. And then you're going to watch a movie from 1990. So you'll really be plunged into the, the 90s era nostalgia. You're welcome, is what I'm saying.
0: I just think the voters need all the information. Fine. Keep in mind. There's still several days, you know,
1: still two days to go until the voting closes Wednesday morning. Right now, I'm looking at the poll. Joe versus the Volcano sitting at 59%. No Country for Old Men, 41%.
0: I mean, it's a landslide right now in favor of Joe versus the Volcano. I'm just saying, you got an extra week to vote. You still got some time to vote. You need to know that if you vote for Joe versus the Volcano, chances are it might cost a little money.
1: A very little money.
0: So keep that in or mind. Or you
1: go to the public
0: library. When you go to the polls. And frankly, if you're not a member of the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, what are you waiting for? We got the new CME Movie Club. We got Wednesday live chats available to everybody. You can get on those in on those for $1 a month. We just launched our new Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon Fight Night Fight Parties. Where we're going to be live streaming UFC pay-per-views and maybe some Bellator pole events. Live from Ben folks's basement. That's for five and ten dollar patrons patrons. Uh we got lots of cool stuff going on. I haven't even mentioned the coming event podcast Power Hour. That comes out every Friday. It's a whole other podcast. It's a complete additional hour long podcast for the five dollar and ten dollar patrons. If you haven't got in on it, you are missing literally hours of content.
1: That's right. Every week. Plus, you get a chance to support two awesome dudes making a podcast in some guy's living room. I'm just going to read this to you. This is from Brandon Boyd, old at Old Crow MMA on there on Twitter. Joe Banks, Tom Hanks, is dying, apparently. This is good news, since his life was not much worth living anyway. On the upside, a strange millionaire, Lloyd Bridges, offers Joe a way to die with meaning and dignity by hurling himself into a volcano... With plenty of spending cash and an ensemble of new luggage, Joe embarks on an absurdist journey to his demise, guided by two very disparate sisters, and trying to puzzle out the meaning of existence.
0: Come on. You don't want to watch that? There's a lot going on there, I have to admit. Yes, you do. Disparate sisters, strange millionaires.
1: The twist, the disparate sisters, both played by Meg Ryan.
0: What? Go over and join the co-main event podcast Patreon today. Settle this argument between me and Ben. We got to get rolling on this, man. We got too much to talk about for UFC 238. We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Heard from a listener this week. uh, He is going to use the Fifth Element song that we use on the podcast To play in his best man at his wedding. Wow. Because they're both uh, CME fans. Okay. gonna have uh, solid walkouts. Well,
1: that is a goddamn honor. You're telling me. Yeah.
0: Touching lives. That's what we're doing.
1: Maybe. Some would say maybe too many lives.
0: Too many lives touched by the Co-Main Event Podcast. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, there's an ancient bit of wisdom to describe what Henry Cejudo pulled off this weekend. And in the words of the great classical masters, it's how do you like me now, motherfuckers? And in round number two, among Donald Cerrone's many UFC records, we can now add becoming the first fighter to lose a fight by blowing his damn nose. And somehow, Tony Ferguson still might not get a title shot. That's troubling, man. It's troubling. Are you troubled? I'm troubled. I'm troubled by it.
1: I can see it on your face. You have a troubled visage.
0: And round number three, Friday night, Bellator takes on Madison Square Garden, Rory McDonald on quick turnaround, an old guy fight between Chael and Lyoto, Caldwell versus Horiguchi part Do? Are y'all dezoning this or what? Is that a verb? Dezoning? I can do that, right? I don't even know It'll what be it's supposed to mean. that shit.
1: Like Friday to use night, DAZON DAZON DAZONIN DAZONIN is to- That's Dizoning. We'll
0: be in Dizone, Dizoning, this Bellator card. I wish you had never found out about Dizone. All of that plus, God, sometimes me too. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy, Giles Mooney. We are assured that his real name. He is not a professional snooker player. Yet. Yet. He's not a professional soccer player. He's not even a third-line player on some uh, obscure European soccer team. But now he has something to shoot for. He writes, So Chevy Chanks went out and damn near decapitated Jessica Eye on Saturday. Aside from the brutal finish, she was technically better everywhere that fight went, including some great clinch takedowns. The problem now is who does she fight next? Looking through the official UFC rankings, the other fighters in the flyweight division match up so badly against the champ that it would be borderline irresponsible to put them in with her. Do you really think anyone would feel good about Shevchenko going out there against Roxanne Modafferi or Caitlin Kukagian?
1: Kukagian? Yeah. There you go.
0: Choo-choo! is that her nickname? Is it Don't Choo get Choo distracted, Canadian? stay on topic. Uh, what's the best way forward for Shevchenko to get some compelling matchups that will build her legacy? Some fighters coming up from strawweight or down from bantamweight. Please God, not another champ-champ fight surely. Discourse, please. This is the problem with Valentina Shevchenko, and UFC President Dana White actually voiced this exact concern at the UFC 238 post-fight pay-per-view press y- conference. Y- yeah. it's like, it's getting to the point we don't know who who can fight her, especially after tonight. Since she looked so damn impressive out there against Jessica I I will say this. Giles Mooney, don't worry about the UFC putting Valentina Shevchenko in some mismatches, right? Two of her last three fights are Jessica I, wherein Valentina Shevchenko, by the way, came in as an historic favorite. Like 14 to 1, I believe. 17 to, be to 1 in some places. <laughs> oh, okay. Damn near 17 to 1. Two fights ago, Priscilla Casuera down there in Brazil. Yeah. February of 2018. Another enormous favorite. Both times, she's just beat the bricks off those other women.
1: Yeah, well, Priscilla Casuera, that was one where it looked like, okay, you are, let's say, setting her up for success.
0: Yes. Maybe putting That's her in a nice fight where it. you
1: can generate some highlights. When you say her,
0: you mean Valentina Shepchenko. Right. Not Priscilla Keshwara. Yeah, you're
1: setting Priscilla Keshwara yeah, Kesh- yeah. Kesh- up for a trip to the hospital. But the Jessica I. one, I mean, that fight made sense. You know, yeah. Jessica I. was winning fights and she was loudly calling for a title shot. There wasn't a whole lot of other ready options. It was like, okay, Jessica I. is making a moderate case for a title shot. No one else has a better idea. Go ahead and do that. And, man, you got, let's say, a memorable finish out of it.
0: You sure did. Sometimes when you put the historically favorite dangerous champion out there with a huge underdog, you don't get the gritty, rudy story of the movies. You get a damn highlight reel knockout where everyone has to sit around... For what seems like an hour, it was actually only three minutes while Jess Guy was down on the mat out cold. And I wrote about this on The Athletic. Yeah. You always know that it's bad when the UFC pay-per-view broadcast won't show you what's going on. Right.
1: No, I, I read your piece there on The Athletic about it. And I, that th- same thought occurred to me because as we were watching it on our live stream in the, for our Fight Watch party, you, you got to a certain moment where you're like, okay – they are staying with this shot of Valentina Shevchenko just standing there and looking increasingly uncomfortable and increasingly kind of the, the elation moving to nervousness kind of. Yeah. And that's when you start to realize something is going on here. And the UFC, they go back to the shot of Jessica I just as she's sitting up. Kind of ignore the whole thing until they know, okay, she's not dead. Like then we can show her. Which is a weird way to handle it, I think.
0: It is, and it's only uh, partially effective when you got Joe Rogan on the broadcast the whole time, being like, "Her legs are shaking. She's still unconscious." Yeah. that's one of the most brutal knockouts we've ever seen. I think that, that's his job to I mean, his credit yeah, at the broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. Right?
1: You got to talk about that aspect.
0: Of and it. also, if you're not watching, if you're not in the arena and you're watching at home on pay per view, it creates this weird sensory experience where you are going to like Twitter to try to get information from people who are actually in the arena about what's happening so you are watching the ufc broadcast where you're you're hearing joe rogan but you're not getting any sort of like visual evidence as to what's happening it creates this weird like meta postmodern viewing experience that also feels super old-fashioned yeah and like it's like you're getting reports on the ticker tape about how uh just guy is doing luckily she seemed like she's going to be okay she's going to the hospital after the show but uh it seemed like she was up and around and, and fairly lucid immediately uh, he, following that knockout.
1: Here's what the UFC's own internal rankings look like at flyweight. You got your champion, Valentina Sarchenko. Number one, Jessica I. This one, this might be subject to some change. But uh, number two, Caitlyn Chukugian.
0: Choo-choo Chukugian.
1: Three, Liz Carmouche, Four, Joanna Yenjechik, who also occupies the same position in the women's strawweight rankings. She's number four there as well. Five Roxanne Modafferi, six Joanne Calderwood, who just lost on this fight card, seven Alexis Davis, eight Lauren Murphy, and then Jennifer Maya, Andrea Lee, rounding out the top ten. Do you see any good options there?
0: I mean, honestly, you look at that list, and the best op- the, the option that you don't want to see her fight yet, JJ again, because they just did that. The the only option really that seems halfway decent inside that top five is Liz Carmouche, and Carmouche is only won two in a row. Uh... So yeah, that's, I mean, there's not a, it's not a clear way forward I mean, you're suffering from the same kind of talent deficiency at women's flyweight that you see, you know, in a number of divisions in the UFC right now with, with Valentina Shevchenko, it seems like the UFC is totally on board with just letting her beat, beat people up. So like, yeah, you know, probably it's going to be Chukagian is what I would think. That's kind of the way they would seem like they were leaning after the event was over. Uh, And if if you get Valentina Shevchenko into some more uh, kind of historically lopsided matchups, I think they feel okay with that right now.
1: Yeah, probably. Kalen
0: Chukagian beat Joanne Calderwood. Same event, UFC 238. Yeah, she
1: kind of muddled the line between winning and losing in that one, but okay.
0: Uh, Next question this week, short and to the point from Victor Lindelof. So, how far will Peter Yawn go?
1: Peter Yawn, your boy, No Mercy, <laughs> he looked pretty solid in there.
0: He did. He goes out there, beats Jimmy Rivera via unanimous de- decision. A game, Jimmy Rivera, by the way. A Jimmy Rivera who might have been winning the first two rounds of this fight before Peter Yawn dropped him in the last 10 seconds in both rounds.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, he was at least way more in it. And then Peter Yawn really turned it up at the end of both those rounds. And then to the point where. Jimmy Rivera's corner is sending him out there for that last round, being like, make him knock you out, basically. Yeah. And and I understand what they're saying. Like, you know, we don't have any lead to protect here. So go go out there and you really got to get after him. And to his credit, Jimmy Rivera, he did the best he could with that strategy. He tried to really go out there and take the fight to Peter Yan, But I think... The, the question for me right now is not so much how far will Peter Jan go, but how quickly are we looking to get him there? Because I think, you know, he seems a little bit impatient maybe with where, where he wants to end up and where he wants to be. But right now, I don't think it, I think you could slow play it a little bit for him. And maybe that would be to his benefit.
0: I agree. And I think especially coming out of this Jimmy Rivera fight, he won the fight. He was impressive. He looked a hair less ready for primetime than I think a lot of people were maybe jumping to the conclusion that he would be. He's he, 26. He's 26. He's 13-1 and one overall. He's won eight in a row. His last two wins, obviously, Jimmy Rivera and John Dodson. So that's starting to look pretty good. But especially in this bantamweight division right now where you had Aljamain Sterling and Pedro Munoz at the same event, obviously, you had Henry Cejudo win the vacant title in the main event. Uh, And then call out a list of dudes that did not include either of those nightly winners. Although, a list of guys that I think we'll talk about during round one that seemed uh, specifically chosen, let's say, to send a certain message by Henry Cejudo. I don't think there's any reason to, like, fast forward a guy like Peter Jan. The placement of his fight on the main card of UFC 238 made it feel like maybe that's what matchmakers had in mind. Give him kind of a showcase here on the pay-per-view. But... I mean, you got all Jermaine Sterling. You got you got other options. Let's let Peter Jan grow, mature, knock some motherfuckers out. Then we'll see where we're at.
1: Yeah, I don't hate that idea.
0: So I think title contender. To answer the question, how far will Peter Yawn go? You, obvious title contender. You
1: don't think title winner?
0: Well, I was, uh, only a few guys get get to do that. Get to say that. <laughs> That's true. He has the. Let's say he could. Yeah, he could win the title. Sure. Why not? Why,
1: why not? not? Why
0: not? Next question from L Lamont. Okay. Is Tatiana Suarez's performance a cheerful end to the female Habib branding we've received relentlessly since she first appeared on The Ultimate Fighter? Bonus question. Is it time for Karolina Kovalkevich to wait for her Uber outside instead of in the cage? Ooh, Ooh, Lamont throwing some heat. Yeah. Pitching some heaters at Karolina Kovalkevich here. Uh, Tatiana Suarez, well, she comes into this fight with a neck injury. Let's say that. Well, I don't know if she
1: necessarily came into it. She said that she injured it on a shot, like in the first round. Which
0: I think and, they said after it was pre-existing. Well, and she came in and, when
1: you have that kind of... Let me tell you, as somebody who suffers from pile of trash neck syndrome, you don't just get a stinger for the first time, probably, as a 28-year-old pro fighter who's been wrestling since you were a child. She knew exactly what that was. So it tells you that, yeah, it's probably happened to her before. And honestly... This is one of those situations where because I've experienced something similar myself and actually have like some kind of context for what it actually feels like, it's kind of amazing to me that she had that happen to her in the first round of the fight, still fought 3 rounds, won the fight, and considering what she was dealing with, looked pretty good. I mean, Nina Ansarov started to come on there a little bit at the end of the fight. But I'm not going to look at that performance and be like, this is proof that you're not really as good as we were told you were. Because oh, no. that's a tough thing to do. Like when people talk about like a stinger and from like a neck injury, especially in the first round, that's going to start affecting you immediately. Because you're just not able to use one of your arms like to its fullest extent, if at all. So that's a significant thing. I mean, imagine going in there and trying to fight somebody like Nina Ansarov, who's a tough fighter on a winning streak here, and you can't really use one of your arms. Like, he, he, If anybody who's ever had a stinger knows, it's like you can't really get your hand to work the way you want it to. Like you can't grip things uh, the same way. You can't really feel it. Plus there's just like the pain that is going to be foremost on your mind when you're going through all that. So I'm willing to be like, okay, you can probably do better at 100% health. But this is also one of those things, as I talked about in my story, that if this starts happening to you, it's going to keep happening to you. Like, it's going to be an issue that you deal with over and over again. And somebody who started wrestling when she's, like, in fourth grade or whatever, and now she's 28, you know she probably has some wear and tear there. So, like, that is going to continue to be an issue.
0: Yeah. Is it unfair to compare a young up-and-coming fighter to Habib Nurmagomedov, period? Because... He might be the best fighter in the world right now. You know, he's on the short list for sure. He's guys undefeated, lightweight champion, uh, making a run, I think, at potentially being the, the greatest of, of all time at that weight. So, like, you saddle a, a young fighter, no matter who they are, with, like, next Khabib uh, baggage. That's a lot to carry around. Yeah. I mean, I understand
1: the comparison, honestly, because from fighting style, because it's that same thing where she's going to get you up against the fence, and then she's going to work for the takedown, and she has a few different options that she can go with. And Nina Ansarov, especially early in that fight, was doing a pretty good job of fighting off those takedowns, defending it. But you could see on her face, like, she's just barely keeping her head above the water, and the the water's still rising. Yeah. And that it eventually got to her. And so it's like, that's a it is a similar style, I guess, to, to Khabib, but... She, you know, she can still, she has a lot of room to improve the other aspects of her game, I think. But as we said before, if you start from a really strong wrestling base, you could do a whole lot worse. Like, that is a good place to build from.
0: Yeah, Tatiana Suarez, 2-0 and as an amateur, 3-0 and on tough, now 8-0 as a professional fighter, including 5-0 in the, in the UFC. And like, frankly, these last three fights, not knocking off nobody's. She beat Alexa Grasso, Carla Esparza, and now Nina Ansarov. So like, You know what? She's going to be in and around the title picture. And at this point, frankly, like maybe the biggest concern, the biggest limiting factor might be that neck. Yeah. Especially for a young fighter like that. Next question this week comes from Tracy Dickinson who writes, How are we feeling about Funkmaster... Potentially fighting for a belt after his performance against Munoz, he looked pretty impressive Saturday night, and I feel like his reach could be an unusual advantage in the bantamweight division. Just the height-reach differential between him and Cejudo would be interesting to see, although Henry has proven he's amazing at adapting regardless of his opponent's fight style. To be completely selfish, I'd just love to hear how loud Matt Serra and Ray Longo could be when coaching for a title as well as the advice they give him, mixed with expletives, of course. Just a lead-up with UFC embedda, Embedded could lead to their own show. Thoughts on Sterling, I mean, not the potential of Sarah, the Sarah Longo show, but I'd also be interested in hearing show titles for that as well. Don't put limitations on us, Tracy Dickinson.
1: Don't do it. Uh, I love this quote. I saw it from uh, PD and Gia on Twitter uh, from Matt Sarah in the corner of Aljamain Sterling. You've got to be the matador. You gotta be the matador. I want you on your feet like fucking Achilles. Now that's a corner man right there.
0: Yes. Uh, the obvious title for the Matt Sarah Ray Longo show is you Breathing! <laughs> with Matt Ray and Ray Longo. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh I mean, the... It was interesting to me, I'm
1: sure we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but Cejudo's idea of who he wants to fight afterwards. because yeah. Everybody else, I think, it came into this night being like, alright, you got... Sterling and Munoz, and then you got Jan and Jimmy Rivera. Somewhere in there is the next title contender at Bantamweight. And then Henry Cejudo wins, and it's all about the past of Bantamweight for him. You know, Dominic Cruz, Cody Garbrandt, Uriah Faber. And I got what he was saying I understand when he was like, hey, I want like legend fights. I want big huge money fights. like Big fights. And uh, yeah, if you told me the UFC booked Henry Cejudo versus Dom Cruz, okay, would watch, you know, like, but I'm also, like, I'm one of these young guys coming up the ranks, and just like, hey, I'm stacking up wins here, that's how this is supposed to work, that's how you got there, so give me my shot, and honestly, that was the best I've seen Sterling look, I think, and he was putting together a lot more of the, like, different aspects of his game in that fight, he comes out of that one, I'm like, okay, I would be interested to see how a fight with him and Henry Cejudo, Henry Cejudo goes, but I also think, one of the things you saw in this fight with uh, Pedro Munoz was if you have to try to do that for five rounds to Henry Cejudo, can you?
0: Yeah. I don't a, know if you can. That's a big question. And I think it'd be hard to do that for anybody to do that kind of stuff against right. Henry Cejudo, as we saw, frankly, in the main event of UFC 238. I think the magic word in everything you just said about Henry Cejudo was money. Because you remember, he he made that list of call-outs Right after he said, I want to be paid like a heavyweight. Right. So, like, not only did he call out the the names that we know at that weight, who might, in theory, represent the biggest payday for him at 135 pounds, the biggest paydays, uh, but he also called out three dudes, potentially as a subtle message to the UFC, as though to say... I want to get paid and here's the three guys I want to fight who are not on the list of guys that you want me to fight. So if we're going to come together on a Peter Yan fight or an Aljamain Sterling fight, it's time for you guys to like put a big pile of money on the table and slowly slide it across to me.
1: Well, and then here's where you wonder about how the new pay-per-view structure affects a guy's desire or you know ability to get paid yeah. off of this. Because it's like, hey, this was a really good pay-per-view. I would think that a lot of people bought this pay per view, and yet I would also not be surprised if you told me the numbers are still down from where they were before you put up a paywall to the paywall.
0: Right, and are the numbers being down good for Henry Cejudo? Because if everybody's selling a hundred thousand pay per views all of a sudden, it doesn't make him. It doesn't make the Flyweight Division. Doesn't make the, the little guys look like they're lagging behind anymore. He's just out there doing what everybody else is doing. True. Aljamain Sterling, though, yeah, I think he's a fitting bantamweight title contender right now, uh, and seemed like maybe he wanted to be a little bit more exciting, a little bit more marketable than like some of the more wrestling-based uh, performances we've seen from him in the past, for better or for worse. Next question this week comes to us from Arnold Gonzalez, who writes, Alexa Grasso dominated Karolina Kavalkovich with her boxing, the one discipline Mexicans are known for worldwide, Uh Besides being fucking awesome, uh, especially good underdogs, I was in a billar watching Invicta in 2015 when Grasso fought Inouye, and I was amazed by that fight. So was Dana. He signed her because of that fight. But maybe she was too young, 21 years old. Maybe John Jones could have been murdering everyone at that age. But for some people, it takes more time. Some regular folks peak at 18. Others at 30. I'm 30, and I think I'm about to have the best years.
1: Oh, well, good luck.
0: Yeah, Arnold... Use that time now, my friend. <laughs> Use that next 10 years. Uh, and others even later. Is it the case that Alexa Grasso, that the, is it the case for Alexa Grasso that the maturation process took some time or is it just that Karolina Kavlkevich is is rapidly fading away or maybe this is just one fight and things just happen?
1: I thought Alexa Grasso looked really good. I thought yeah. what was really impressive about her was, for one thing, her footwork really allowed her to use her hands a lot more in this fight. She just kept Carolina Kovalkiewicz exactly where she wanted her. And she had like a ton of pop on her punches. She just threw stinging jabs at times. And Carolina Kovalkiewicz, maybe not the most defensive-minded fighter to begin with. It seemed like she was content to rely on her toughness there at times. Like, hey, if I have to charge in here face first and get hit in order to give myself an opportunity to give one back, then, then I'll willingly do that. Not everybody's going to fight that way. But yeah, I mean, I think that Alexa Grasso could still do a whole lot in that division. It's just, it's hard to say this early in the game.
0: Yeah, like she's a young fighter. Like, it's possible that... Well, I think two things. Number one, it's possible that, yeah, she did need to mature as a fighter a little bit before she reached her full potential. And number two, like, we see a lot of people take some time, take a couple fights at least to get their legs under them in the UFC. Even lifelong veterans come into the UFC and struggle sometimes early on before they kind of get everything figured out and find a place where they can be comfortable enough to to give their best performances. So I think for Alexa Grasso, it might be a combination of all of those things, you know? And she's she's still super talented. uh, And I think that... uh, the sky's the limit there for her still, just as long as she continues to, to improve and and be the kind of talent that, frankly, we, shot, we thought she was before her arrival in the UFC. Yeah. Last question this week from Johnny Ontiveros Jr., who writes, Lots of weight class jumping the past few years. Do you think that the UFC should ever consider a weight class for women that would be like the men's heavyweight division? 145 pounds to 180 pounds, for example, asking for my morbid thoughts.
1: I mean, it seems tough enough to fill a 145-pound class, doesn't it?
0: It does. Like, I think that, you know, you would probably see a women's heavyweight division. Uh, first of all, like, you, you know, if you start at 140, that's that's women's flyweight. 145, so you move up. So, yeah, that, or women, I'm sorry, women's featherweight. Uh, a heavyweight division for women would suffer from the same... Maladies that a heavyweight division for men does. It would be Slim Pickens, maybe for uh, talent. So
1: is so it just Gabby Garcia beating up everybody?
0: Gabby Garcia and maybe uh, uh, a
1: series of Kenza Japanese Harrison. legislators.
0: Just every fight is Gabby Garcia versus Kayla Harrison. Uh, so, like, I think it's gonna that would be a shallow division, but at the same time, I'm not sure that it's a terrible idea because I think there are fighters out there on the the independent circuit or in other organizations who are fighting at higher weight classes than the UFC offers. I think if you were to... be fair to them, it would be cool to have that big weight class even though you're not going to... It's not going to be the most stacked, most competitive, most jaw-droppingly full of talent division of all time.
1: If you went to Dana White and the UFC matchmakers right now and were like, how about a women's heavyweight division? I feel like they would all have strokes, just stress-induced strokes right on the spot.
0: I think they would throw stuff at you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I mean, best case scenario. Is that how it ends? It's like them throwing stuff at you.
0: There might be some get the fuck out of here. Yeah. thrown around. They're
1: just, I think that that idea alone would just make veins bulge out of their foreheads.
0: Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, You know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short, short. It's informative. We'd love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe.
1: I don't know if you're looking at what's going on here in the comment section of our live stream you know, of this year happened? podcast, but uh, let's just say your man Chuck Turtleman might have come through for people on a on a link for if they want to watch Joe versus the volcano. Okay. Just saying.
0: Well, that sounds like we're I'm, I'm uh, just saying commenting on illegalities here on the podcast. I d I uh, don't
1: I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just saying your guy Chuck Turtleman is helping people out.
0: As for right now, we're gonna get started with round number one. Then, as we talked about on Friday's Power Hour, Henry Cejudo rolled in to some pre-fight events for UFC 238, dressed as a magician king of some kind with a crown and a cloak and a top hat filled with stuffed animals and proceeded to, uh, among other things, punt a stuffed bunny rabbit into the crowd.
1: That's just showmanship. A lot of talk
0: online about Henry Cejudo maybe doing too much clowning, playing too much. Trying too hard, as they say. Uh, Then he goes out on Saturday night against Marlon Marais and turns in one of the most impressive performances, especially in a UFC title fight of recent memory. Yeah. I was trying to think about this after it was over, but, you know, we've seen come from behind victories before. We've seen uh, out of the blue victories before. I don't want to, like, start throwing around superlatives, but I don't—I can't recall— A fight where a guy looked as stylistically buried as Henry Cejudo did in the first round here against Marlon Moraes, and then completely turns it around. Right. Almost like turning on a dime. He comes out for that second round and suddenly Henry Cejudo starts to put it together. And by the third, he's dominating, ends up finishing TKO via punches just before the horn uh, to end round three, 4.51, the official time.
1: Yeah, what's amazing to me about it is, like you said, we were watching that fight in the first round going, uh-oh. This does not look good for Henry Cejudo.
0: He didn't look like he knew what to do. No. Like, he looked completely lost out there. Like, he had not even trained for what Marlon Rice was going to do. Right. Like, he was, both legs were getting obliterated by those low, low kicks. He had right. a big-ass bruise on his left leg. His right leg was getting kicked all the shit in the calf. It looked like Henry Cejudo uh, was going to be out of this thing in a hurry. And as we
1: later found out, he came in with an ankle injury that already can hamper your mobility before you even start getting kicked in the legs a whole bunch. And he just looked like he did not know how to get out of that range and how to get into a place where he would actually be able to do some damage of his own. And he goes back to the corner and you hear his corner telling him, "Like, look, we can't just stand there and get kicked. Like, You you need to be at punching range. We don't want to be standing there. We need to be moving forward there. And then he goes out there and just does it like he just starts to implement that plan in the second round as if it's that like he might be the one fighter where if you're just standing there yelling put your hands on him Henry he's gonna somehow make that work because he just went out there and was just like all right we're not fighting at that range anymore I'm just getting up in Marlon Maurice's face and you could see it throughout the second round especially late in the round where he just makes it into a different kind of fight and that ability to just make that adjustment to go like all right This guy is coming out, doing his thing, and I want to completely change the distance at which this fight is contested and being able to actually go do it and do it that effectively. You could see him just little by little in that round taking the fight away from Marlon Marais.
0: Yeah, it seemed like both a technical alteration and also like a matter of will. Like, not only was Henry Zahudo going to close that distance and not just stand out there at, at kicking range and turn this stylistically into more of a Henry cejudo style fight, he also just wasn't going out like that. Yeah. It seemed like. And you saw the, like, the mental fortitude of the Olympic gold medalist, frankly, like a guy who came up through a very regimented, very difficult athletic setting and a guy who, frankly, at this point has has done every damn thing he said he was going to do. And so that's one of the things that was impressive to me. Like, not only did Henry Cejudo have the physical chops to be like, I'm going to change the kind of fight this is, and I'm going to turn it into my fight. But he also was just kind of like, ref- to, I'm sorry for this cliche before I say it. Refused to lose, kind of. Right. Well,
1: and I think that that, as much as the physical stuff, is what kind of broke Marla Murray's down. Because yeah. you could see him late in the second round, but especially in the third round before like leading up to the finish, he started to accept a little more where... Henry Cejudo wanted him. Like he started to accept the positions that Henry Cejudo wanted to put him in. Like he got put in that front headlock at one point. And you can see it's not like a, a crazy explosive snap down that he does to get Marlon Moraes down to the mat where he wants him. He just kind of pulls him down. You can see Marlon Moraes being like, "I don't have it in me to resist this." And he he would just like, "Okay, I'm accepting this position." Then it gets a little worse. It gets a little worse. And the next thing you know, you're too far behind, and he didn't have the gas tank to uh, fi- figure a way out of that. And Henry Cejudo at that, that point is just pouring it on him and so it was like I I think that that like when faced with that kind of implacable will from the other guy I mean imagine it from Marlon Maurice's standpoint Yeah, you're kicking the shit out of the guy's legs you're doing exactly what you wanted to do you're thinking to yourself surely he won't be able to take too many more of these and then the next thing you know he's in your face hitting you with you know incredibly fast hands and then also battering you to the body and the head with these knees and the clinch and you're going well shit how did this
0: happen yeah yeah, not only uh, is Marlon Race out there throwing big-time power shots in that first round, I think, you know, understandably thinking that he, the fight was about to be over, but you're right, after Henry Cejudo turns the tide, that's got to be a terrible emotional and psychological kind of adrenaline dump to just go from thinking you were about to win and about to be the champion to being like, "Oh shit, yeah. how much time is left in this thing? Uh so Henry Sudo gets this win. One of the more impressive wins that we've seen in recent memory. UFC title wins. He's now the champ champ, or as he would say, triple C the champ, champ, champ,
1: champ, 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 champ,
0: the Pac-Man style champ, 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 men's flyweight champion, men's bantamweight champion already beat the previously unbeatable men's flyweight champion, already beat the previous bantamweight champion in a flyweight fight, and now beats uh the consensus number one contender at 135 pounds, Coming into this fight, I feel like public sentiment was Henry Cejudo is a damn clown. And I feel like coming out of it, he seems like everything that he said he was, that maybe we thought he was just uh, engaging in some puffery.
1: Right. I think that it's a huge star turn for him, really, because he set out to get our attention. And he did. It really worked. Even if people were like, I don't like this. I, I wish it would stop. I'm cringing on his behalf. He still got you to pay attention. And he got you to feel invested in that fight. Because even if you came away going, somebody please knock this fool out for yeah. all this crazy shit he's doing. Or if you went in there and said, you know what? Like, I dig it. I'm, I, I like a guy who can have some fun. Yeah. Either way, you were paying attention. And you felt like you had a reason to care about the outcome of this fight. And then he goes out there and has such an impressive performance after starting off poorly, which makes it all the more impressive when you see the, the win in the end. And afterwards, people are going like, all right, tell me when the next time I can see Henry Cejudo is. I'm just interested to see what the UFC decides to do with him. Because for one thing, Dana White keeps insisting, for one thing, keeps insisting that not only is Flyweight sticking around, he can't understand how anybody even got it in their heads that it wasn't sticking around. Right. I mean, all they did was let go the most dominant champion they've ever had on that weight class. And then we know the the roster of that weight class down to like nine or ten people. He can't understand where you got the idea that that meant they were getting rid of the weight class.
0: Plus a guy came out in the media and said, they paid me to kill this division. Right. There was also that. And
1: Henry Cejudo says he wants that to stick around and he wants to defend both belts. So do you give him a chance to do that at flyweight? And if so, against who? Or do you keep him at bantamweight where there's a lot more options but do you go, all right, we want you to fight the next contender in line or do you go like, all right, how about Cody Garbs or somebody like that? Like yeah. how how about one of these guys you called out and, and kind of a, a legends tour?
0: Yeah. Well, you know my distaste. Not eye Faber.
1: No, not You Uri ought Uri. to be brought up on charges. Even
0: put. Dana White said he's old at the press conference. eye Faber is old, <laughs> he says. I was like, ouch. I thought that was your guy. Uh, you know my distaste. Uriah
1: Faber and I were never friends
0: just business acquaintances work associates. You know my distaste for uh Dana says stories.
1: Yes, I do uh, know that.
0: And yet, like I feel like it's kind of good news that he that he said several times over this UFC 238 weekend like, yeah, that they're they're going to give Henry Cejudo the opportunity to be the champ champ and that Henry Cejudo is that rare athlete who might be able to to defend belts at both of these different weight classes. And in addition to that, hilarious how uh Befuddled even Dana White seems by Henry Sahuto's antics. Like at the press conference, people were asking him about stuff Sahuto had said about being the pound for pound king and all this stuff. And you could tell Dana White was just like, What? What did he say? <laughs> at one point, somebody said, like, told him a Henry Sahuto quote, and there was a long pause, and Dana White just went, Got it. Like that.
1: <laughs> so even. You can see his face in the background when Henry is pulling out all the props, and he's looking at, like, making the face like, are you sure about this?
0: Oh, man. Just like even in the TJ Dillashaw one when uh, when Dana White hands Henry Cejudo the plastic bag and Henry Cejudo does that thing where he tries to pretend like the snake is alive in there. <laughs> and Dana just, Dana no-sells, just it. no-sells it. Dana just no-sells Turns around and walks away from him. Like, I don't want to be part of your yeah, your little I, dramatic production. I don't even want to
1: be standing near it.
0: I don't know what you do with Henry Cejudo, man. I would love to think they let him keep both belts. But at the same time, like, if you're not having fights at flyweight, like, what's the point? Kind of. Uh, and... At the same, I mean, there's there's good options, I think, at 135. I'm just not sure uh, what, uh, what the right one is. I'm not sure that there's like a big money fight there pending the return of some famous person. But I want to see Henry Cejudo fight again. That's all I know. I want to yeah. see him fight somebody. I want to see what he comes dressed as to the next stare down. He's going to give you something. I appreciate it. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. I don't know that we're going to have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me here this week or not, but I think there is one clear Are You Fucking Kidding Me in the news today. Okay. Okay, you're going to do it? Your guy Justin Bieber oh, damn it! calls out Tom Cruise for a fight, says he's scared. You're scared, he said, if you, if you don't take me up on this. Who do you think? What aggressively online MMA personality do you think interjects himself into this uh, previously one-sided discussion?
1: Is it the undisputed champ champ of Twitter, Conor McGregor?
0: It's the notorious Conor McGregor offering to put this fight on under the the banner of McGregor Sports and Entertainment, which I love that that's still floating around. This is a a thing that that rears its head. Update. Uh Uh-oh. Today, here's a headline. Logan Paul wants to fight Justin Bieber for wanting to fight Tom Cruise. Hold on. I... Will you say that again? Logan Paul...
1: You remember him. Yeah. From, from he did like a boxing match. Celebrity thing. boxing days.
0: Yeah. He wants to fight the Beebs because the Beebs wants to fight Tom Cruise.
1: So. So like if you, if you fuck with Tom Cruise, then you got Logan Paul on your ass is what you're saying.
0: LP is coming to the defense of Tom Cruise.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Wouldn't it be fitting somehow if Conor McGregor winded up as a, like a glorified celebrity boxing promoter? I mean. I think that's good work if you can get it. And he could do it. Like, if anybody could do it, he could do it. Conor McGregor out here uh, earnestly talking about how Tom Cruise can actually fight. How he saw him in the gym and he looks good. I can see it, man. I can see it going down. Are you fucking kidding me, you guys? i kidding me. Fucking kidding me. Was that what you were going to do? No. You got a different one? Yeah. Okay. What's your are you fucking kidding me? Pop
1: mine. I dare you. I'm actually going to keep it real with you here on my are you fucking kidding me. We did not get a chance to talk about it, but did you see Calvin Cutter's knockout of yeah, uh, Ricardo Lamas? I did. Impressive. Impressive. Super impressive. Also, just straight up crushes that man's jaw with his right hand. Yeah. Now, I'm sure you'll remember that Calvin Cutter's the guy who befriended a bird. Remember this? Yeah. Sitting outside Panera, a I'd... bird followed him back to his car, he brought the bird
0: home with him. Okay, I don't uh, recommend that, but... <laughs> You fucking kidding me, Kevin Gunner? Trying to become one of my guys? You fucking kidding me? I hear
1: knocking motherfuckers out
0: befriending birds and shit. You fucking kidding me? I can get into this. Trying to keep it real now during Are We fucking. Are you fucking kidding me? Is that what we're doing? I don't know. I, High standard now. I bar I, to clear. Got to keep it real during Are You fucking to kidding scan me?
1: Stand TMZ headlines first before. Are you fucking? I'm kidding
0: giving me? you an. Are you fucking kidding me today? How we dare be, you? We right back with round number Unprecedented. two. Unprecedented.
1: So there we were, in the middle of the main card at UFC 238, having an awesome time, frankly. Just living it up. You get the first round between Tony Ferguson and Donald Cerrone, pretty close, back and forth. Second round, Tony Ferguson has taken over that fight. He's hitting Donald Cerrone with his weird spinning elbows. He's mixing it up, hitting him, sometimes it seems, almost simultaneously, with kicks and punches. And then, rounds comes to a close, we hear the horn, and... Ferguson fires off one last short right hand, blasts Donald Cerrone right in the nose. Donald Cerrone kind of freezes for a moment as if, oh, no, you did not. Or like he just wants to make sure that everybody saw that. Then he goes back to his corner and blows his nose, which seemed like it had already been broken before that right hand after the horn. And then reaches up in horror at his own face as if he realizes, oh, God, what have I done? His right eye completely swollen shut. They won't let him go out there, which is for the best, yeah. nothing good is going to happen to you if you go out there with one eye against Tony Ferguson who's already piecing you up at that point and the fight's over due to a TKO. Now, my question to you, one, how much did that punch after the horn mean in that fight? Two, do you come away from this still going, you know what, that's Tony Ferguson's win. Tony Ferguson won that fight or do you have like a little bit of an asterisk next to it for you?
0: yeah. I mean, we went from tittering like middle school kids on the last day of school to finding out summer vacation got canceled, right? That's yeah. kind of how it felt. Uh, I tell you what, immediately following the fight, I thought that's a, you know, it was obviously a disappointing ending. But I thought Cerrone won the first round and uh, Ferguson won the second round. Come to find out, I think all three judges had Ferguson ahead 2018. Uh,
1: well, two of them I believe, did, and I think one had it even.
0: Okay, so like Tony Ferguson was ahead. Cerrone was fading. It seemed like I don't want you don't want to count out Donald Cerrone. No, he's the like well the one dude that you don't want to count out as a fight starts to stretch on. But like immediately after the fight, I was like, okay, I'm okay with them running this back and doing this again because of how it ended. The further I get away from the fight, the more I'm like, man, Tony Ferguson has 12 damn wins in a row. Yes, like you gave him the interim title and then took it away without him losing it. Like let this man fight for the title and above and beyond that, if Habib Nurmagomedov. Emerges from like his unification fight with Dustin Poirier as the champion. I can't think of an awesomer fight, right? Than T. Ferg and and uh, Habib, and you know what it is. Like it's kind of like uh, the professional wrestling match that ends with no loser, and both guys get to go their separate ways and do great things. Like you know, Cerrone. Kind of did a dumb thing when he blew his nose, but dear God, can you imagine how uncomfortable that must have been yeah. to make Donald fucking Cerrone, who has more fights than anybody else except, I think, Jim Miller in UFC history, blow his nose between rounds? Because, like, clearly he knows you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. And he did it anyway. So that must have been some terrible shit to have happen. And you could see the look of horror, the look of, uh oh, shit, what did I just do? We've got to check to make sure my eyeball is still there. Uh, as soon as he did it. So like I can't really fault him for it. I think he he doesn't necessarily look like the loser. Coming out of this fight. I think Tony Ferguson doesn't look like the loser. Coming out of this fight. I think it would be a, a shame to book the rematch. Because it's kind of like Cerrone can cash in on his Undertaker status here. And just go on being a dude that everyone loves. And he can have more uh, promotable, sellable fights. And not even necessarily fall out of title contention. Uh, I feel like... Okay, for one thing,
1: it is impressive when you think about a 12-fight winning streak. Nobody else has done that. In this weight class. Yeah, and, and the, the, the toughest weight class. But also, do you know last time Tony Ferguson lost a fight? It was t- 13 fights ago. May 2012. A while ago. Just to give you an idea of how long that's been, there weren't even in, there any women's divisions in the UFC the last time Tony Ferguson lost a fight. Remember that era? That's a complete it's like that's like two eras ago (laughs) in UFC time. That's the last time he lost a fight. Yeah. And I understand I I have a column about this up at the Athletic Today, like I understand how it seems like Dana White has it in his head that he wants to do other things with the lightweight division, and he's really trying to keep his options open. You could see him just like immediately in dipping in dodge mode when people are asking about Tony Ferguson. And it's like, okay, he doesn't want to commit to anything. He doesn't want to say, okay, yeah, Tony Ferguson's next for, cause he knows there's some, there might be some money to be made elsewhere. Like, Khabib comes out of that fight with Dustin Poirier. If you can convince George St. Pierre to get back in the game, he said that he would, you make a bunch of money off of that. If you can find a way to justify a Conor McGregor rematch, you make a bunch of money off of that. You probably look at Tony Ferguson, and you're like, it's a super hard, Like, fight for both guys, the hardcores will love it, but you don't make a ton of money. You merely make a boatload of money. Yeah. And yet, if you are in the business of promoting awesome fights and giving the fans what they want, which you tell us over and over again, that's what you do, how do you avoid this fight? And how do you tell Tony Ferguson after all that, like, you know what, good job, go win another one? Or sit around and wait for us until we've done all the the big money fights we can do. Like, I just don't see how you can say it to the guy at this point. And how you can not realize that you are sending a message to everybody else in the UFC, too. That, that this is how it works, and it's bullshit. And the next time you're going to try to get somebody to be like, Hey, step up and fight for this interim title as a last-minute change or as to help us plug a hole in a fight card... They all are going to think about the cautionary tale of Tony Ferguson. Yeah. Who won so many damn fights, won a belt, and then still it doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah. There were a lot of questions leading up to this fight about Tony Ferguson's mental fitness. About his, like, what was going on with him psychologically. Just because there had been reports uh, of the restraining order that his wife had against him. Of him talking to people who weren't there. Trying to find, uh, you know, stuff in the walls. When it's the pretty classic, like... A delusional kind of psychotic break sort of behavior. Uh, we like we talked about a lot on on all the shows. It's hard to tell leading up to the fight what kind of headspace he was in just because Tony Ferguson is pretty weird all the time. He certainly looked capable, he certainly looked in the in the fight like he hadn't lost a step. But if you were the UFC, does that continue to be a concern for you? Does that continue to be a question mark? Like I know you want to go do all this Habib, George St. Pierre stuff and make a bunch of money, but is also one of these hesitations here. Like, do you want the champ to be a guy if you don't know, like, that he's going to be available? You can't
1: selectively get worried about that now if you're the UFC. You felt like he was fine enough that you wanted to put him in a fight with Donald Cerrone uh, very shortly after reports emerged of all this stuff going on in his life. You can't be like, okay, now we're worried about him. I just don't understand why... You don't want to put together this fight, which would be awesome. Like, is it just because you think, okay, there's more money to be made elsewhere here? Because maybe you can make that money later. Or maybe you can make a bunch of money off of Tony Ferguson Kabib. Khabib. I mean, I think you, if you just look at where both of those guys are, I don't see... Especially if Khabib comes out of that fight with Dustin Poirier, you know... Having defended the title and in one piece and that matter is settled... I don't see how you can avoid feeling like the next most logical thing that would also be super popular with your fan base would be Khabib versus Tony Ferguson.
0: Yeah. Do you think that the UFC would be better off to just sort of be honest about it? Because, you know, like you said, when you're in, quote unquote, dip and dodge mode, like it comes across. Would would the UFC be better off just to be like, look, if we can make Khabib Nurmagomedov versus George St. Pierre at the end of the year – we're going to do that. People might complain about it, but that we're a, we're running a business and that's the biggest fight that you could make in numerous weight classes right now. Is that better? I mean, people would obviously have a fucking uh fit if they if they said that out loud, but it would be better would it be better than like trying to pretend like something else is happening when we all kind of know that's what you're doing.
1: Yeah, maybe. But especially because the stuff that Dana White is using to try to set up this feel, like just hearing the stuff he was saying after the fight, where like he had that weird interview with the Aaron Braun setter, where he's being a total asshole about just like word choice and going like, because he asks, "Can you deny Tony the focus on the title shot?" Now And he says, "Well, no, he's never been denied. No one's ever denied him a title shot." And I was like, "Well, okay, you didn't offer it to him. He gave it to somebody else. But you know, we're nitpicking over word choice. Is he next? And he would he." First started out saying, yeah, and then he's like, oh, but Tony said that he would rematch Donald Cerrone, so maybe that fight's next. And it's just like, if you're an experienced fight fan, you watch just that brief exchange and you're going, Tony's going to get screwed, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Trying to offer up this justification, like, as if there's unfinished business between he and Donald Cerrone, as if, like, that is something really that we need to take care of. I, I don't buy it. It's, it rings hollow for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. Obviously, uh, it's kind of like first world problems for us because watching Tony Ferguson and Donald Cerrone fight again will still be a pleasurable experience. Would watch. Yeah. We'll, we'll watch Would watch. And, uh, but it does seem like Tony Ferguson deserves slightly better. And if he wins again, then he has 13 wins in a row. Like how many wins can Tony Ferguson put together in a row before, you Like, you got to do something with him.
1: Right. And then, like, if he inevitably loses one just because he has to keep, like, the odds catch up with him eventually. And then, you know, the UFC is just going to be like, well, hey, you got to win them all. Like, literally every fight forever, you have to win.
0: But you also have to be super exciting while you do it. Have you seen that meme out there of the seven faces of Tony Ferguson's last seven yes. opponents? And every single one of them just looks like a hamburger. Like, they went <laughs> through, a like, a meat grinder. Yes. Jesus Christ, man. Tony Ferguson. And he's just so much fun to watch. And he's
1: like an interesting character outside of the cage. I mean, all the pieces are in play here. Instead of like just trying to be like, okay, which former pay-per-view star can I resurrect for like a one-time-off payday before he then disappears again? You have a guy you can build on. Promote this guy. Make this guy a thing. You can do it. He has all the pieces. That's going
0: to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, if somebody asked me, hey, man, what's Bellator like? I would point them in the direction of Bellator 222. Okay. Kind of a big deal for Bellator this Friday night, June 14th, from Madison Square Garden out there in NYC, because this, this fight card is like a microcosm of what Scott Coker is doing with Bellator. Okay. You got a competitive welterweight tournament fight as the main event right. featuring Rory McDonald taking on Neiman Gracie. You got a hashtag old guy fight between Lyoto Machida and Jail Sonnen. You got this kind of co-promotion deal with Ryzen where Darian Caldwell is going to rematch Kyoji Horiguchi. The gooch. And then you got Dylan Danis floating around on here just yeah. for fun. You got Aaron Pico on the prelim card. And you got a Hooters girl. Lauren Dash leading things all Oh, I'm sorry. Larkin Dash. Larkin with a Y. Uh. Leading off the the preliminary card, everything you need to know about what Bellator does, Bellator two twenty two, it's right there for you. That's what it's like. Plus, you got to go find a zone.
1: Are you saying this as a as a compliment, or I'm saying as a, it's just a statement of fact, an man. observation?
0: Yeah, it's just an observation. Like, you know, this what is a snapshot
1: of where Bellator this is. is a, in yeah,
0: this is a snapshot. Like, there's positive stuff on here. Like Rory McDonald is one of the best fighters in the world. Bellator to their credit through all of the best 170 pound fighters that they have in this tournament and made McDonald put the title on the line every time he fights. Uh, and he's going to go out there and fight largely Bellator built Neiman Gracie, even though he had a couple of fights, I think, in World Series of Fighting guys nine and zero. most of his fights are in Bellator. So that's like the the straight laced competitive fight Bellator wants to put in the main event with the with one of the best fighters in the world. And then you got, just for fun, Lyoto Machida Chael Sonnen, right before it.
1: Just for fun, indeed.
0: So, like, I don't know. You think that's positive? You think that's negative? You just want to have a, a good time on Friday night? Bellator
1: 222. Uh, am I seeing this right? I mean, at least that the, the bout order I'm looking at has Roy McDonald and Neiman Gracie as the main event. Mm-hmm. And then as the co-main, or like, at least in that spot, Lyoto Machida Chael Sonnen. I believe so. And then under that, the
0: title fight between Darian Caldwell and the Gooch? That's, that's the bout order that I've seen, yeah. That is weird. It's a little bit weird, yeah. But I mean, it's also kind of a little piece, uh, piece of realism, right? A little piece of pragmatism there from Bellator. You're gonna and we just
1: have to stick Chael Sonnen as late in the car as we can to keep keep, keep people watching on his own.
0: Hashtag old guy fights.
1: What is your level of interest in Lyoto Machida versus Chael Sonnen in the year 2019?
0: Not all that high. <laughs> okay. Is it just we still
1: like to have Chael Sonnen at the party? He's a fun guy to have around. Yeah.
0: And again, I think Bellator is doing the thing. Friday night, if you're free, and you have the zone, and you like to watch fights, why wouldn't you watch Bellator 222? Like, little something for everybody. Some no strings attached fun tournament fight. If you're into that, no UFC, no UFC. Dylan Danis probably going to talk some crazy stuff, depending on what happens. I guess I got nothing bad to say about it. Like, it's it's. It's a it's a good little fun little Friday night car. Madison Square
1: Garden, too, the MSG. granddaddy of them all.
0: I will I think we talked about this on the show, but I also think like Bellator kind of sneakily has put together a pretty solid six months worth of fights yeah. to start out 2019.
1: Well, and has managed to do the thing that we said would be a real hurdle for Bellator to get it over, which is to go from one event to the next without seeing a huge drop-off. Yeah. Because that was always the thing. Like, it could put together a big tent pole event, as some has referred to it, but then the next weekend you're back in Thackerville, Oklahoma, with a bunch of people that nobody really cares about or knows. Right. And it, you have to take a long runway to kind of build up momentum and cobble together the people you have onto one card that people actually want to see fight. And now... You, you've you built yourself to a point when, you know, you can go from one event to the next and kind of feel like, all right, it's another Bellator, and somehow these are all turning out to be pretty quality events.
0: Yeah, and and I don't think that it is a coincidence that we have reached this point the same month that Scott Coker is going to celebrate five years as the head of, of Bellator.
1: You think we're seeing the fruits of Scott Coker's labor?
0: Well, I think, yeah, I think we're starting to see the Scotty Cokes vision for what Bellator is. He spent the last five years... You know, grabbing free agents when he can get them, getting guys like Aaron Pico, getting guys like AJ McKee to kind of be the young up and coming uh stars of Bellator and then just sort of like bolstering the pre-existing talents that they had there, like the Pitbull brothers and Michael Chandler. I think you're starting to see now like both like the, frankly, the positives and negatives of the Scott Coker vision where, yeah, man, Bellator can put together six solid months of fight cards they're still going to do Uncasville, Connecticut. They're still going to do Thackerville, Oklahoma. But they're also going to do the Forum in yes. L.A. They're also going to do the Rosemont in Chicago. They're also going to do Madison Square Garden.
1: They're going to do Madison Square Garden and the Windstar Casino, all in one. And see, when you and you're right though. Like you look at the event before this, it was the one with uh, Pitbull versus Chandler, and also Douglas Lima versus Michael Page, uh, and then and of course Jack Swagger versus Beef Plant. Never forget that one. Right.
0: I mean, there's yeah, there's. With Bellator in 2019, I think there's been a lot of really good stuff, and there's been a lot of, like, what you would call classic Bellator stuff. And
1: then the event right after this one, you got, uh, Yegard Nusasi, the young vagabond, against Rafael Lovato Jr. for title fight. And then you get Paul Daly versus Eric Silva. You get Melvin Manhoff on that card. Like, you're right that they do, they have somehow got themselves into this position. I guess my question is, is, is this good enough? Do they need to find another level above this one? Or can you keep at this point on to zone behind that paywall and feel like, all right, we, we're a success now.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot because I have a story about Scott Coker that comes out tomorrow. You talked to the man himself, Scotty Cokes? I've talked to Scotty Cokes. Oh, nice. Indeed, I did. Uh, did you tell him that we're
1: calling him Scotty Cokes? I didn't, did I didn't, I didn't mention
0: that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know what he would make of that. I assume he would do the Scott Coker thing where he would just chuckle and be like, ha, love it. <laughs> and that would be it. Yes. That would be it. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about, like, what, talk to him about where he thinks Bellator is and, and where it's going. And you know what Scott Coker is going to say. Like, anything you ask him about where Bellator is going, he's like, we're just going to put keep putting on great fights. You know, he's going to do the Scott Coker thing. Like, I think Bellator is in a pretty solid place right now competitively. Like I said, they've been building this roster for five years. Unfortunately, there's still – or, like, fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there's still some classic Bellator stuff going on here. But they also – you know, they're putting on solid fight cards kind of month after month here to start out 2019. Uh, I also think that DeZone is not a great home for that stuff at this point. Uh, he did make the point they're going to be on Paramount a bunch this year. They do, they're do they going to do more events on Paramount than they are going to be on DAZN. So This one's only on DAZN. This one is exclusively on DAZN. I think it's sort of like the Bellator version of pay-per-view kind of. Uh, and And, you know, like... When you think about the difference between Bellator and the UFC, frankly, just being on ESPN Plus is fucking enormous. Just having the ESPN logo, being on ESPN, is being on the ticker. You almost you owner. almost can't quantify how much it means yeah. for the UFC. And so, like at this point, Bellator being on DAZN and Paramount, it leads Bellator to kind of like again, apologies for the cliche, but kind of like an "is what it is" kind of situation. Like Bellator, I think is doing fine, and I think it's going to continue to do fine. For the foreseeable future, as long as Viacom is cool with that. But I don't know that there's a real strategy to close the gap with the UFC short of maybe the UFC flames out and disappears, which seems a lot less likely today than it did, you know, three years ago or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, the UFC has definitely tested the resiliency of its own brand, but has proved to be actually pretty resilient.
0: Yeah. You know what else I realized about Scott Coker this week, which I like it took me a while to come around to it. But once I realized it, I feel like it makes sense. Like this guy's tastes are still so rooted in like being a taekwondo guy from the West Coast because that's kind of where he grew up. The '80s and '90s, uh, being a taekwondo teacher and student and, and fighter and performer on the West Coast. And you think about all the stuff that Scott Coker fucking loves: tournaments. Yeah. Taekwondo guy, what do you do? You go. Your schools get together. You go to a tournament. Everybody that's right. fights each other. Uh, one of the things Scott Coker has been known for was really an early adopter of women's MMA. In terms of like the bigger promotions. Uh, force was putting on women's MMA fights back when Dana White was saying they would never fight in the UFC. Why? Because when you go to traditional martial arts practice, there's women there. It's a co-ed thing. Everybody fights, man. It's cool. Everybody can do it. Uh, who does Scott Coker seem to love the most? Stars of Golden Age MMA. Fedor Milianenko. Scott Coker fucking loves that guy. Why? Maybe because he fell in love watching him fight in like the year 2000. So it's like every time every time I start – and like this co-promotion with Ryzen, well, that's just like getting the two karate schools together, man. (laughs) Having the best fight the best and see who comes out on top. The more that I think about it, the more I I come around to the fact – and he pretty much said this, that like Cogers is still very rooted in like that traditional martial arts mindset. And I think part of that also is him like wanting to put the fighters out there rather than have him be the, the focal point.
1: Imagine that. How about this? Petition to have Bellator rebrand itself as the All Valley Karate Championship, or we'll go just to avoid copyright infringement. There, we'll go All Valley Mixed Rules Fighting Championship. I mean, rolls off the tongue for one thing.
0: We've seen some worse stuff out there in today's uh, combat sports pay-per-view market,
1: right? I'm going to let you have that one, Bellator. That one is free. You can go ahead, put out the press release now, and I I will tell you to enjoy it in good health. Happy to help. Are you con- way I can.
0: Are you concerned at all about Rory McDonald making this, this, this comeback, this I'm, I'm return? I'm concerned
1: about where Rory McDonald is just generally. Yeah, psychologically. I mean, for one thing, we are learning here that, once again, medical suspensions mean nothing in MMA. You yeah. can turn right around, have this fight. But also, he just kind of told us that he wasn't feeling it quite as much now that he's got God in his life and whatnot. And then we have to turn right around and have this welterweight tournament fight it's it'll be interesting to see how into it Roy McDonald is.
0: Yeah, like because on paper he should definitely win this fight. Yes, and so like we we saw him have like kind of a grinder against John Fitch, like not the most pretty or or fun fight to watch. Then again, a lot of people are gonna have that kind of fight against John. So that's Fitch. what John Fitch do, man. Against Neiman Gracie, I feel like you need to be impressive if you're if you are still hashtag trademark registered trademark Rory McDonald. If like if you're still that guy. I kind of want to see you dance circles around Neiman Gracie.
1: Yeah, I just I just don't know if he's going to be like bathing in another man's blood anymore and loving it quite so enthusiastically as he did in his pre-religious awakening era.
0: Yeah, I think it's a bad sign. Well, it's not a good sign. Let's say when you have to put out a statement, a clarification statement that you are still interested in fighting.
1: Yeah, like that's that t- that does tell you something.
0: We'll see though. Maybe maybe he. Uh... He meets all expectations on Friday night, and and we come out of this one feeling a little bit more confident about where Rory McDonald is at. Or not. We'll just have to wait and see. We will indeed. Let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, you mentioned it a little bit, but have you taken a gander at the prelims for this Bellator card? Yeah, I'm looking at him right now. Yep. He's the featured prelim, you might say. You might
1: say that, if that were a thing that really existed for Bellator, and if the, the prelims were not, in fact, just a really long list of fights that Bellator seems to use, again, in the Strike Force mold, solely for ticket sales, yep. solely for local ticket sales. You also got Heather Hardy yep. is on the prelims for this fight, I guess, to sell tickets. I mean, she, she knows some people who might want to see some mixed rules fighting in the New York area. So I guess that's the thinking there. I'm just saying, though, the Aaron Pico one surprises me. You know, we got Dylan Dantas up there. He gets a spot on the main card. Eduardo Dant- Dantas and uh, Juan Archuleta. They get a spot on the main card. Aaron Pico, who we're all so excited about. Just recently, Bellator was thinking, looking at him like he was the, the blue chip prospect. We're going to go big places with Aaron Pico. You know, he lost in his pro debut, but then he bounced back. He was body punching motherfuckers left and right. And then he goes out there and he gets knocked out in January by Henry Corrales. And now, is this it? Are we giving up? are we giving up on the Aaron Pico thing? Second on the
0: prelims, uh, is this all on DAZN, or are the prelims on Paramount? I don't know what they're planning. I mean, it kind of makes sense if the prelims are on TV. If not, then yeah, this is kind of a weird placement for for Aaron Pico. I'm just saying. It seems like it's been a real roller coaster ride for Aaron Pico. It does. And once again, you got him fighting a dude who's 12 and 0 in this matchup. I don't know anything about Adam Borix. I assume that we didn't put this together to try to get in the Borix business, but at the same time like Serving Aaron Pico, another fight against a much, much more experienced opponent.
1: I had an uncle who was in the Borics business.
0: Yeah, pays and, paid well. Good work if you can get it. Yeah, Three it decades in the Borics business. Stressful, very stressful. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying Dana White kind of tipped his hand about the future of fighting at the uh, UFC 238 post-fight press conference. Uh-oh. he He's let it slip that uh, they're going to be, t- this is what he said, they're going to be touring a facility in Vegas in the next 10 days. And he oh, hopes no. all the media can come. Can come do it. So it seems like... And that would jive with
1: what he told uh, Chuck Mendenhall about how it's going to be announced soon that he hopes everybody's out in Vegas for it.
0: When we first heard about the future of fighting, you know, we thought it was like a new performance center. Uh, they're opening one in Mexico City, he says. Now they're going to do one in China. Some kind of facility here in Vegas where the people can go tour it. I think that's the future of fighting, and I'm just saying, god damn it, I, I was never so disappointed that we were right. <sighs> okay, what
1: if, though, the facility... Is a place where they plan to have zero gravity fights. I
0: mean, it could maybe there's something awesome in there.
1: Yeah, the facility is. You walk in there and it's just like sand on the ground and it's like a gladiator pit. Yeah, and the the future of fighting is fights to the death.
0: Well, they they also have that new place, the Apex, right? Where they're hosting. That's where Dana White contender series is going to be. Their own
1: little stadiums to just do like house shows, essentially.
0: Is that it? Is that the future of fighting? Is that what we're going to be touring? Are we touring the Apex?
1: Kind of feels like the future of fighting is just the next step in the trajectory that the present of fighting was on as far as the UFC is concerned.
0: I'm going to keep my mind open until we we see the facility. I'm just saying kind of feels like maybe I'm disappointed that we were right. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at uh, Bellator 222 and then look ahead to the following weekend where I'm certain there is a UFC event, right? What are we headed uh, into? Here? Oh, and, it's uh, uh,
1: Korean Zombie is, at the Bon Secours Wellness Arena.
0: Is that one on regular uh, ESPN? I think that one is on ESPN Plus. Oh, okay. I feel like we got a regular ESPN card coming up, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: You are Engano uh, versus Dos Santos at the end of the month. Okay, in Minneapolis. Yeah, your well, boy might have to hit the road for that one. That's yeah. me. I'm your boy. Oh, you're going to Minneapolis? I, I very well may be. Well, at least you get a direct flight there. See. I was not at all influenced by that.
0: No, I'm sure. I'm sure you were not. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. are in the Minneapolis. you can eat in a Fogo de Chow, One of those Brazilian restaurants where they just um, continually come around and cut meat okay, straight yeah. onto your plate. I went to one of those in Brazil. It was very enjoyable. Yeah. The best way to get the meat sweats. Like, you will definitely okay. leave Fogo de Chão stuffed and like, ready for all the rest. Yeah, I- Oh, that's, that's how worked the same as yeah. in Brazil, the red side yeah. and the green side. Really uh, impressive experience. You can man. tell it left an impression. Local man has mind blown by Brazil, so. Goes to big city, falls in love with restaurants.